Today, we're continuing on in our series, A First Century Faith for the 21st Century, as we've been going through the Epistle of Romans. And as we have been talking about, if you understand Paul's epistle to the Roman church in the book of Romans, the theological issues, then you're going to understand the core issues of the New Testament, the core issues of the gospel and the church. So today we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 9, verse 1 through 33. And the title of today's message is God's Sovereignty in Salvation. God's Sovereignty in Salvation. This is going to be a a deeply theological sermon. So I'm going to ask you uh, to to really give this a laser-like focus because we're going to be talking about some big concepts related to salvation. Now, when we say God's sovereignty and salvation, when we say God, we're talking about the one true almighty God. There are not many gods in this world, as many religions believe. I am not a God. You are not a God. There is one almighty God. When we talk about sovereignty, what we mean by that is God's sovereignty means that God is above all things. God knows all things. God is in ultimate control of all things. God allows things that he wants to allow and stops what he wants to stop. God works through all things, and all things are under God's power. That's what we mean by God's sovereignty. And when we talk about salvation, we're not talking about saving you from unemployment or saving you from that bully at school, or saving you from a bad um, health diagnosis. I mean, those are all important things to you and me and God. But we're primarily talking about what does it mean that God is orchestrating God's sovereignty, our salvation, our ultimate, eternal, spiritual salvation. That means that we're not just a body, we're a spirit. And when we die, where do we go? Do we go out of the presence of God, away from God, away from God's people, into the pit of the flames of hell, and are damned there for all of eternity? Or are we saved from that by the Lord Jesus Christ and go into the eternal salvation of God with God and God's people in heaven for all of eternity? So when we say God's sovereignty and salvation, that is what we're talking about. Now, the question that we're going to address today, the primary question is this. What role does God play? What primary role does God play in choosing us for salvation? In choosing you? What is his role in saving us? And uh, that's why we talk about a big theological topic here. And... At the same time, what, what role do we play in this? Now, we play a role. God plays a role. Uh, what is the relationship between those two things? Um, obviously, the Bible says things like, uh, choose this day, make this the day of your salvation, uh, believe in the Lord. There's all these exhortations for us to choose to follow Jesus Christ, to choose to believe. That's kind of our responsibility on one hand, but then on the cosmic big picture level. It is God's responsibility to first choose us. I like to put it this way. In normal life, there are choices that we make, and there's choices that are made for us. What are some of the choices that you and I just make normally? Well, we get to choose um, our friends. We get to choose our career. We get to choose the amount of effort we put into our schoolwork or not. We get to choose uh, where we live at, when we're adults. There's a lot of choice. You, you chose what you uh, are wearing here today. There's choices that we make on an individual level that we can all recognize. But on a bigger picture level, there are bigger issues beyond our individual choices that we didn't get to choose. For example, you and I did not get to choose the day we were born, whether we were born. We did not get to choose who our parents were. And unless it's an extreme circumstance, 
you and I will not get to choose the day and manner of our death. And so even though we make these individual kind of decisions in normal life, in the larger picture of bigger issues, when we were born, who we were born to, and when we die, we have no control over that for the most part. And so that's a basic way of looking at this and what Paul's addressing here in Romans 9 that we're going to see today. He is talking about the bigger cosmic issues of the decisions that we don't really get to make on the most important things. Who lives, who dies, and how does that work with God? So that's kind of the setup for um, this sermon. We have been looking at the first eight chapters of the Epistle of Romans over the past, I don't know, since we started this in, what was it, September, October, and, uh, or maybe earlier on. Um, actually, I think it was earlier on that. Um, and so now we're coming to this, uh, this, almost like this parentheses in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Uh, whereas the first eight chapters, Paul has been talking about um, the fact that we are sinners saved by grace by the Lord Jesus Christ when we place our faith in him and receive the Holy Spirit. That is the essence of the first cha- eight chapters of the book of Romans. Um, in Romans chapter 12 and following, he's going to talk about how we live out that faith, the Christian faith in a practical way. But this parentheses now between Romans 9, 10, and 11 is primarily Paul is going to talk about the role of God's sovereignty in the salvation of Israel, and the salvation of the church. And so that's what we're going to be spending the next three weeks on. And so today we're going to look at Romans chapter 9, all 33 verses, God's sovereignty in salvation. And what I want to do is, uh, is I'm actually going to give you a moment to, um, to read this. I'm actually going to give you a moment to read it. So I want you to open up your Bibles. I want you to open up your phones. I was going to read this to you right now, but I actually like the idea of you reading from your own Bible or your own phone. Romans chapter 9. I'm going to give this about two or three minutes, however long it takes. And I would like you to read the entire chapter. And as you read all of Romans 9, you're going to be asking yourself, uh, what is Paul communicating about the sovereignty of God in people's eternal spiritual salvation. That's the key thought as you read Romans 9. So go ahead and read uh, that, all 33 verses. We'll give it a, a couple of minutes, and then we'll come back together, and we'll go through some key passages. Okay, we'll come back together. And before we get into this, before we open up in prayer, I want to confess something to you, that um, I plan this week or next week to go see the movie Jesus Revolution. And that is the story of Calvary Chapel, and I'm interested in seeing what happens in this movie. Uh, It's the story of Chuck Smith and Greg Laurie. Um, They would probably disagree with some of the things that we're going to talk about here in terms of election and predestination and how it's laid out here of what I'm going to teach in Romans chapter uh, 9. But but I'm still going to go see the movie. And uh, there's some good guys in that movement as well. But we do have um, some disagreements to a degree. And so uh, let me go ahead and pray for our time, and we'll get into it. Romans chapter 9. Father, this afternoon, as we have come together, we recognize that it is only by your hand, you drawing us to yourself through Christ Jesus, that we even have the privilege of sitting next to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We have the privilege of being able to enter um, into your presence through the shed blood of Christ. Lord, I pray that we would come to this time with a sense of humility and with a sense of awe, with a sense of godly fear, with a sense of amazement of how we, as wretched sinners, have been plucked out of the depths of the pit of hell and been brought to the saving grace of your presence, and your peace reconciled through Jesus Christ by your hand, Lord. And so may the preaching of your word lift up your name to the highest place in your work of salvation in our lives for those who believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what we're going to do in Romans chapter 9 is I'm going to pull out a few key themes, a few key scriptures about what Paul is laying out here in terms of God's sovereign role in our salvation. 
And so let's go to the first here. Um, the Apostle Paul is talking about, it'll come up at some moment. Um, Apostle Paul is talking about wanting Israel to be saved. Wanting Israel to be saved. Can we change the slide up there? Thank you. Awesome. Okay. Um, wanting Israel to be saved. And let's look at Romans chapter 9, verse 2 and 3. In Romans chapter 9, verse 2 and 3, uh, Paul says, actually in verse 1, he says, I'm speaking the truth uh, in Christ. I'm not lying. The Holy Spirit uh, bears witness to my conscience. So he's calling upon two members of the Trinity, Christ and the Holy Spirit in verse 1. And then he says this in verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I... I, Paul, myself, were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. That's not, that's not the church, brothers. Brothers means the Jews, his fellow Jews, Hebrews, um, those of Israel. Cut off for the sake of, from Christ, for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Again, reinforcing, he's talking about brothers in terms of his Jewish heritage. Paul begins Romans chapter 9, and he says, I'm saved. I know Christ. I am in Christ. But I look around at my Jewish brethren. I look around at Israel, unbelieving Israel, of which I was once a Pharisee. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, born of the tribe of Benjamin, Philippians chapter 3. And I look at my fellow brethren who do not believe in Jesus, who believe that when he died on the tree, it was a curse. It wasn't, and the curse was upon him, not upon us, that was alleviated by his death on the cross. And so he looks at that and he says, you know what, I, I, if I could give up my salvation, and have all of Israel saved, I would do that. Now, he knows that's not theologically possible. He's talking hyperbole. He's talking out of emotion. He's talking out of deep grief for wanting to see his brothers, his other Jewish brothers, come to faith. Now, why was this important? Now, you've got to understand the history of what's happened. I'm going to summarize this in like 60 seconds, to one to two minutes of, of Israel's journey. Let's go on to the next. Perfect. All right. So what do you have? You kind of read this left to right, top to bottom. And um, Paul knows that the history of Israel was such that they were not a people until they were summoned out of the Exodus, out under Pharaoh's hand in the book of Exodus. Uh, Let my people go, as Moses says. And uh, they were formed. They are released by Pharaoh. They part, uh, the Red Sea is parted. There's like a million of them that come out of there. And, uh, and they're formed as the people of Israel at that moment, out of the Exodus. And they are now God's chosen people. Um, they are summoned out of Pharaoh's hand, and they're formed, and they are now God's people. As you journey into the Old Testament, you can go through... Um, you can go through Exodus, you can go through Numbers, you can go through Deuteronomy, you can go through um, uh, the Judges, you can go into the Kings, and, uh, and all through the prophets that talk about this, all throughout the Old Testament. You can just read the sweep of God's people's journey in the Old Testament, from the Exodus onwards to Malachi. And what you have is this journey of, of God's people saying, we'll follow you, we'll worship you, until we don't. And then God punishes them, and then most of the time, they eventually repent, and they go, okay, we'll follow you, we'll worship you, until we don't. And then they get disciplined, and then they come back, and it goes over and round, and, and that's like the majority of the Old Testament, that journey with Israel. And it's not unlike our own journey with God, right? I'll follow you until I don't. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving me. I'll come back. Okay, I feel better now. I'll follow you until... And so, God finally says, you know what, this, this is not working. I'm going to send Jesus Christ. We come to the New Testament. And by that time in the New Testament, Israel's heart was so hardened against God. They were so distracted by following the, the religious uh, teachings and traditions of the religious leaders that were teaching false things, not the true um, way to faith in God, is that their hearts were black. Their hearts were hardened. The Bible says their, their ears were dull. Their eyes were blind. Their hearts were hardened. And so... When Jesus Christ comes, most of them reject 
Jesus Christ in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Some of them come to believe, Joseph of, of Arimathea, Nicodemus. Um, certainly the disciples were Jewish. You can look throughout the New Testament in, in the churches. There were a mix of Jews and Gentiles, former Jews who came to faith, and Gentiles who came to faith. And, um, and there was this time when, um, you know, in the Old Testament, where they had gotten wiped out, you know, by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and, and it was just this, this, this whole mess. Now, when you go forward after the crucifixion of Christ, but still in biblical times, in 70 AD, uh, the Romans come in and they destroy the temple and the whole thing is cleared out by about 132 AD and the Jews are just scattered. Um, And that's how it went for like 2,000 years. And then in 1948, Israel was finally recognized as its own sovereign nation. That was a significant thing. That's like... uh, you know, what, 80 years ago or so. And it was at that point, Jews were not just scattered throughout the entire planet. They were actually recognized as having their own land, as an own people, and they were formally recognized as their own nation. And you skip forward uh, about, um, about 18 years or so, 1966, around there, and there was something called the Six Days War. And that was a war between Israel and the neighboring nations where they basically took possession of full possession of Jerusalem, the Golan Heights, um, Gaza Strip and, and Israel, uh, Israel, uh, Israeli settlements and etc. And uh, that's kind of where we're at today. And so you hear news about Israel and the war between Israel and Palestine. One side's throwing rocks at them, the other side's throwing you know, bombs and missiles. And, and um, I think there's a real conflict for us as Christians today because we look in the Bible and we see the significant primary role that Israel plays in the Old Testament even in the New Testament, um, in terms of the Jews. And we say, well, you know, as Christians, we should uh, show favor to Israel because the Bible says that Israel will one day return back to the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we know today, we look at these wars between uh, Israel and Palestine. Sometimes uh, Palestine is at fault, and sometimes um, uh, Israel is at fault. So it doesn't mean that no one's fully at fault there. I mean, always, always right. But um, we can recognize there are some Muslims that come to faith, some uh, from Israel that come to faith. But overall, Israel has played a significant role in the Bible, although many of them now are rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Bible actually says that they will continue, Israel will continue to reject Christ until the final end times. In the book of Revelation, you can read it, there's about 144,000 who come to faith, whether it's symbolic or literal, we don't, we'll, can't say specifically, but we know that there is a remnant of Israel that will come to faith. And that's kind of the gist of what Paul's thinking, at least up to the New Testament times, of Israel's journey and where we're at right now in this timeline. And so, you come back to this scripture in Romans chapter 9, verse 2 and 3. Um, the Apostle Paul, when he says, I have great sorrow I have great anguish in my heart. He's looking at Israel's history. And if you look on down, it's not on the screen, but you can look in in your Bibles and you look in verse four and verse five. He gives reasons why Israel was so important to him, so important to God, so important to the cosmic plan of God's plan, um, scope of God's plan. Verse four, it says, the Israelites, to them belong the adoption. God had chosen them. He'd adopted them as his people. Verse 4, it says uh, they have the glory of knowing God and being known as God's people. They have the covenants. That is the Abrahamic covenant. I will give you land, Abraham. I will give you uh, descendants. That was the Mosaic covenant. Um, Here's the law, Moses. I'm going to give this to you. God's saying, I'm going to give this to you to give to the people. They had the Davidic covenant, which was the line of the Messiah would come through the line of David. They had the covenants, verse 4, verse, again, they had the giving of the law of Moses, the worship, they had the worship of the temple, the promises of God, verse 5. They had the, uh, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, etc. They had all, this, all of this to their advantage, and yet they missed Jesus Christ. And so Paul moves on here. And he says, Israel, he talks about Israel next. He says, God sovereignly chooses only a remnant. God chooses only a remnant of Israel. 
Um, if you go to Romans chapter 9, verse 6, and also verse 27, we have that on the screen here. In chapter 6, he says earlier on, um, the word of God has not failed. Look, um, for all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all the children of Abraham, because they are not all his offspring, verse 6, verse 7. For not all, I'm sorry, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all. What's Paul saying here? He's saying, even though Israel is a descendant of Abraham, not all of Israel are truly gods. And you skip on down to verse 27. He says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, which is a multitude, only what? A remnant of them will be saved. So at this point, Paul's reminding us that even though Israel is a, is a, is a people, not all of them will be saved. Even though Israel is a large people, like the sands on the seashore, there's only a remnant that will be saved. This is entirely consistent. When Paul's writing this in the first century AD, when he's writing this Roman epistle, it's entirely consistent with the history of Israel throughout the Old Testament and even into the church age and even into today. You can go back into the Old Testament and you can see that not all of Israel was truly God's people. Not, uh, and there's only a remnant that tends to get saved. When God's people in the Old Testament went into the wilderness, they're wandering around for 40 years in the book of Exodus. Only a remnant of them actually went into the promised land, remember? All, all of those, all the older people died. It was their kids that got to go in. Only a remnant was saved. Only a remnant got to go into the promised land. In the time of Elijah, in 1 Kings chapter 18 and chapter 19, Elijah was looking around at the wickedness of, Cap, uh, of, um, of King Ahab, Queen Jezebel, and he's saying, you know what? There's so much apostasy among God's people. I'm the only one left, Elijah says. And God, after he does a bunch of miracles through Elijah, says, no, 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 Elijah. I have reserved 7,000 who have not bended the knee to, to Baal. You're not alone. There's a remnant, even though you can't see it, that I have preserved. You can go back into the Babylonian captivity when God's people were wiped out by Assyria in 7722 uh, BC, and then by uh, 586 BC, uh, Babylonians come in and they just wipe out uh, Judah. They take them captive. They live there for 70 years, which is modern day um, Iraq. And then after 70 years, only a remnant came back to repatriate Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the wall. Only some of them were saved. There's only a remnant there. In fact, you look in the New Testament, and uh, very few Jews came to faith, as opposed to the number of Jewish people that were alive to that day. Today, the same is true. Most Jews, most people who are descendants of Abraham, do not believe in Jesus Christ, whether you're here in America, another place in the world, or in Israel. And he says in verse 7 through 12, go ahead and look at that in your Bible. And he gives two illustrations of the, this idea that um, not all of Israel will be saved, but only a remnant of them will be saved. And in verse 7 through verse 12, I'll summarize it. He gives two examples from Israel's history to illustrate this. He says first that uh, there was Abraham, father Abraham, book of Genesis. And as you know, uh, Abraham had... Uh, a child through uh, his, 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 his slave woman, uh, Hagar, that was not his wife. Sarah was his wife, but he had a child, Ishmael, through Hagar. And then he had another child through Sarah, which was Isaac. And when Sarah died, Abraham married another woman named Keturah, and he had about a half dozen or so sons. And... Paul is here saying, look, it's, it's the offspring of Abraham. The promised offspring was Isaac. Even though Abraham had all these other children by Hagar and Keturah, they're children of the flesh. Now, there's this remnant that will come through this one son, 
Isaac that will lead to Israel, to God's people. He gives a second illustration in uh, verse 7 through 12. He said, there's a man, Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, married a woman named Rebekah, and they had two sons, two twin sons, Esau and Jacob, who was later named Israel. And he says that uh, in verse 13, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What does this mean? He's mean he means that Jacob was born technically first, Esau was born second, but God sovereignly chose Jacob. We don't really know why God just kind of chose. It's his right to choose. And, uh, and all of Esau's descendants were children of the flesh. Go to verse 8. Look at verse 8. This is how he, Paul summarizes up this section. He says, this means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. That's Esau. That's Abraham's other children, Ishmael and the others. They are called the children of the flesh. Verse 8 again. But the children of the promise, that's Isaac, that's Jacob. The children of the promise are counted as offspring. And so Paul is saying that God sovereignly chooses only a remnant of Israel to be saved. God does not choose all of Israel to be saved. And this is going to have implications for us as as people who are not part of Israel, that not everyone we know will be saved as well. Let's move on. Paul's going to make a point about how we today as a church need to trust in God's sovereign choice of who he saves for his purposes. He's going to focus on the sovereignty of God and why we need to trust in God's wisdom his power, his, his right to choose on who gets saved and who doesn't. And God has purposes that are higher than ours. In verse 18 through verse 23 of our passage, go ahead and read that. Skip on down. Paul says, so then he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever, whomever he wills. Verse 19, who will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known for the riches of his glory the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? And what's Paul saying here? He's saying, go back to verse 18. Look, God gets to choose who he has mercy on in terms of who he wants to save and who he doesn't. God, in the biggest picture, is the one who chooses you and I, or who doesn't choose you and I for salvation. He gets to choose because he's God who he has mercy on and who he doesn't. Now, when this says who he has mercy on, who he gets to choose, it is not talking that God has foreknowledge on who is saved or not. Like, for example, God is above time. Paul is not saying, well, um, God is above time, and he simply just kind of looks and sees into each one of our hearts who would actually choose him when we're born and, and live our lives. And God has that foreknowledge, and so God kind of looks at things, who would choose him, and then he sees that, and then he goes back, and then he chooses us and elects us and predestines us based upon our foreknowledge of our choice. He's not saying that. He's actually just saying, no, you know what, God before time and space, before we even entered the scene, chose us for salvation. At the biggest cosmic level of looking at this. And this is entirely consistent with the Old and New Testament. When you look in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and Deuteronomy chapter 9, God speaking through Moses says that God chose to save God's people. He chose to save Israel, to give them land 
Not because they were powerful or righteous, but they were actually stubborn. But God chose them, it says in Deuteronomy 7 and 9, because he loved them and swore an oath to their forefathers. It was God's initiative to save Israel, to choose them. Psalm 132, Psalm 135, it says, The Lord has chosen Zion. He's chosen Jacob as his dwelling, his own possession. It is the Lord who has chosen God's people. Isaiah 41, it says, Israel was chosen by God, and they were taken from all the ends of the earth. Out of all the ends of the earth, Israel was chosen. Jeremiah chapter 1, God actually says to Jeremiah, he says, you know, Jeremiah, prophet Jeremiah, before you were conceived, before you were in the womb, before you were born, before you were conceived in the womb or born, God says in Jeremiah 1 to Jeremiah, he goes, I knew you. I was the one who chose you before you were even conceived in the womb. I chose you to be a prophet for the nations. You can go to the New Testament. Jesus says in John chapter 6, no one can come to me, that's him, unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, uh, Pastor, we looked at last week briefly with Pastor Mike. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. And those whom God has predestined, he has also called. And those whom he has called, he has also justified. And those whom he has justified, he has also glorified. In our passage here today, in Romans chapter 9, verse 11. You can go back to verse 11 here. It says, um, Though Jacob and Esau were not even born yet, verse 11, chapter 9. And they hadn't done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. God has predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. God has chosen us. And at this point, there should be at least two questions going through your mind. Number one, what is my emotional reaction to this? To the, what, is the, what is my reaction to hearing and to reading in Romans 9? That God is the one who chooses for salvation. And God is the one who chooses to have mercy on some and not have mercy to others. What, how does that hit me emotionally? Do I think that's fair? Do I think that's right? Do I agree with this? And I think for a lot of people, we don't like this. We don't like the doctrine that God is sovereign over our salvation for some fairly obvious reasons. Especially here in America. Freedom, independence, exercise of of choice. Uh, We like the idea that we're in control of our own destiny. We like the idea that, you know, uh, uh, everyone everyone should be treated equally and and the same. And there is no such thing as favoritism here. Um, uh, We we have tried to make America like that, although we don't always uh, succeed in that, obviously. Um, And so God certainly would would treat everyone the same and would not uh, choose some and, and leave others. And I think that thinking is really flawed. And I'll tell you why. is because when you deal with issues of salvation, you're dealing with ultimate things, life and death eternally. And going back to the opening um, example that I gave, we can have choice, equality on certain issues here. When you're talking about ultimate things, like when you were born, how you're going to die, you're largely out of your control. In the same way, that's how we need to look at salvation. You and I, we don't want, you guys, you don't want responsibility for your own salvation. You don't. And I certainly don't. And I'll tell you why. Is because I know my own heart. And I know how fickle my heart can be. I know how fallen my heart can be. And if the ultimate responsibility for my own salvation solely ultimately lied with my sole ability to choose God or not, I wouldn't even be here. 
and you wouldn't either. On top of which, I do not want the responsibility for your salvation on my hands. Because think about it. If the choice of who comes to faith ultimately resides in the hands of man, then I have a responsibility to go out into all the world and share the gospel. If I don't, their eternal blood is on my hands. Why? Because the ultimate responsibility is in the hands of man, not God. I want God to have the ultimate responsibility. Why? Because I know I can't handle that. And I don't think any one of you can either. I want God to be able to say, oh, thank you, God. You have determined things. Now I'm going to live my life zealously. I'm going to live my life in obedience to your command to go out and make disciples of all the nations, Matthew 28. And I'm going to do that. And I'm going to care about people who don't know people, uh, Jesus Christ. But I don't want any of that responsibility ultimately. I can't handle it. And I don't trust you to handle it either. I trust God to. And I think that is the, probably the most compelling argument to me on why God is sovereign in salvation. So I, I think, um, you know, we can, I can look at this and say, you know, if I was turning to you and say, you know, I have three kids, Darcy, Keen, and Ethan, and um, the zombie apocalypse has just occurred, but I have the antidote. I have the shot to cure them of the zombie apocalypse. But you know what? I'm only going to give it to Keen. Unfortunately for Darcy, unfortunately for Ethan, they will live in eternity in a zombie state, and that's kind of the end of the whole thing. Now, um, now, 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 you, you, would say, you would say that that's incredibly unfair. But why wouldn't you say, man, you, you were so gracious to Keen to even save him from that state? Um, what if we knew that Darcy and Keen... Um, actually loved being zombies? What if we knew that they were meant to be zombies? And what if we looked at that? Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Ethan, Ethan, Ethan. <laughs> you get the idea. You get the idea. And so in the same way God turns to us, he says, I'm going to choose some, but I'm not going to save all. And so the second question you should be asking yourself at this point is, is why? How does that truly work? Now, does God, follow me on this, you guys, does God destine, does he elect, does he choose some to be saved? And secondly, does he pass over some, and, or actually, does he make others not predestined, not chosen, not elect? So some are chosen for salvation, and some are chosen for damnation. Is that what this is? Or is this simply we are all in damnation, and God chooses to save some while leave others. Both of those views, double predestination or just single, I will save some, leave the others, were affirmed by the Protestant Reformation. You can go back to the Synod of Dort. You can go back to the Westminster uh, Confession after uh, the initial years of the Protestant Reformation, and they affirmed both views. But the primary position of the Protestant Reformers was what? That people have, God has decreed, follow me in this, God has decreed to allow the fall of man. God did not cause the fall of man, but he decreed to allow it. And because he decreed to allow it, we now all deserve to be in darkness and evil and in the pit. We have inherited our sin from Adam, Romans chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 15. You, that was not in your control. You inherited a sin nature from Adam in the fall. And so we are all starting from the place where this lump of clay that he gets to in a few moments is defiled. We are all deserving of that. And so now God comes along and he says, you know what? I'm going to choose some people to be freed and saved. And the rest, it's not unfair of me as God because you guys chose the fall. And even if you weren't there in the garden, we still chose it every day in our own sin. And so we all have responsibility. We're all in the muck. And it is a gracious God who has chosen to rescue some of us. That is entirely consistent with how God related to Israel in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and is entirely consistent with how he's related to the church and what the Bible talks about going forward.
And he says in the second part of verse 20 and 21, he says, uh, you know, uh, what will the molded say to the molder? So he's going to give this metaphor, right? You have a clay, um, uh, uh, a batch of clay. Why have you made me like this? Verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if, and then let's stop there. So God takes the clay that's defiled, that's infected by sin. And he says, I'm going to take some and make some for honorable use to be saved. I'm going to allow some to be used for dishonorable because that is the nature of the clay in the first place. And my graciousness comes in by me taking some of the the defiled clay, which is uh, the defilement of our evil spirits, and saving it, being used, your life and mine, in Christ for honorable use. And so he says this, why? Why would God do that? Why? You know, if it was me, and I'm glad it's not, if I was God, I would have done it this way. And probably a lot of you would have done it this way. We would have said, you know what? Let's just be fair. Let's just do two things. Number one, um, let's just give people free choice. Whatever they want to do, okay? That way they take full responsibility. I'd probably do that if I was God. And number two, I would say, you know, um, or I would say, you know, let's just save everyone. You can live this wretched life here on earth, but you know what? You're fallen. It's a terrible situation. It's not perfect. But hey, when you die, everyone makes it to heaven. In my fallen mind, I'd probably choose one of those scenarios of how this all works. And I'll bet you a lot of you would too. You'd say, you know what? Everyone gets in or just everyone takes full responsibility. And so no one, get, no one can complain to God about that. The problem with that is that if everyone took responsibility without God first initiating, no one would go to heaven. Because no one would choose God. The Bible says we're dead spiritually in our sins, Ephesians chapter 2. The problem with saying everyone goes to heaven is that, wow, why did Jesus Christ even come to die on the cross then? Why does it say salvation is only through Jesus Christ and faith in him? Why does the Bible talk about there are some that are in hell? And so this is really the only logical scenario is that God, in the biggest sense, plays the primary role in our salvation. In verse 22 and verse 23, why? Why does God do this? In verse 22 and verse 23, talks about three reasons. Number one, verse 22, God has shown mercy to some and hardened the hearts of others. Because number one, he wanted to show his wrath to us. And that is very important that your understanding of who God is includes that God is wrathful and he's wrathful against evil. You look at a family that has children and the parents lack discipline where the children don't respect the parents because there's no consequences in the family. You say, what's wrong with that family? That's not good for the kids. These parents are irresponsible. We look at that. I mean, we see that all around our culture today, right? And yet you see a family that's not, uh, parents that are not just loving, but well-disciplined with their children. And the children respect the parents. And the children do not grow up under that household to be lawless, animalistic human beings. And the same is true with us. I need the fear of God. And so do you. I need to know that God is wrathful, and so do you. And you know why? It's because my heart is so dark. If I didn't believe that there was punishment, if I didn't believe that God was wrathful, if I didn't believe that I need to have a healthy, reverent fear of God, I would just discard God. I'd go live my life in the most lawless way because I know my heart. I need God's wrath to put me in check and to lead me to the truth, and you do too. So he gives one example of wrath. And number two, he gives the example of why God has done, uh, chosen, sovereignly works in salvation. Because he wants to show his power. He wants to show his power, verse 22. God wants to show that he and he alone has the ability to choose and to save, not us. 
And we see that him saving God's people all throughout the scriptures. And number three, not just his wrath, his power. In verse 23, God wanted to show his mercy. We are in deserving of his wrath. He alone has the power to save. But at the core, God is also merciful. We, should be a, we are a merciful people towards others. Why? Because we have received mercy. Whenever we are not merciful to others, we are contradicting the reality of our belief and our profession of faith that God is merciful towards us. Wrath, power, mercy. And finally for today, church, Paul wants to remind the church of which he's writing to, the Roman church, that salvation is by faith and it's from God. Salvation is by faith and it's from God. In verse 31 through verse 33, uh, Paul says in verse 31, he talks about Israel pursued the law. Remember, they were given God's law. And they thought that because that they had God's law, that it would lead to their righteousness before God. But they did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith, but by works. And it says that they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. That's Jesus Christ is the stumbling block. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him, that's Jesus Christ, will not be put to shame. Paul ends this chapter by saying, the Gentiles didn't have the law. That's uh, in verse 30. They didn't have the law, but they came to faith in Jesus Christ. They found righteousness because of faith in Jesus Christ. The Jews, Israel, they had the law. But they thought, you know, I'll just try and keep the law, but I won't have faith in Jesus Christ. He says, then they were lost and they actually stumbled over Jesus Christ, not believing that it's just having faith in Jesus Christ, trusting him, following him as Lord, because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law. But instead, I'll just do it on my own. And this is not any different than so many people that you and I know today. People today in every other religion other than Christianity will pursue a right works righteousness. And they'll say, here's my other um, Quran. Here's my um, Book of Mormon. Here's my sutras. Here's my other scriptures from other false religions. And if I just obey and try and do these good things for other human beings, try and improve myself, it'll be fine between me and the cosmic power above Most people will be damned to hell because of that kind of thinking. And today in the 21st century post-Christian context, what you have is whole numbers of people, probably the largest, still the largest group of uh, professing people today in America who say it's not about organized religion. It's I'm my own religion. I am my own law. I'm, I'm spiritual on my own. I'm good on my own. I don't need organized religion. And so I can work to try and do good based upon what I feel is fulfilling to my life and what is true to me right now. And what Paul is saying here is that, no, you're making the same error, error that Israel made because you've missed faith in Jesus Christ. And he has caused a cause for stumbling in your life. You must abandon your hope that you can know God without Christ. You must abandon your belief that, the, that unholiness, evil, and living apart from Christ is a more life-giving way than knowing Christ. And so, Paul wants to remind us here that... Um, there are certain things in closing. I, I'm a, I, as a father, as a husband, and those of you that are husbands, those of you that are fathers, will completely understand what I'm about to say. If you're a husband, if you're a father, if you have responsibility to provide, if, if you are the one that God has charged to lead your marriage, to lead your family, 
you understand, and you understand this with a greater degree the older you get, the burden that you carry that is different than your wife or your children. You know that as a father and as a husband that you carry a weight and a burden and a responsibility that nobody else who's not a husband or a father can understand. And that is the way it is. And you all understand it if you are in that place. And in the same way, as we've looked at Romans chapter 9, it's very similar. Our Father in heaven carries a burden for us as his children that we're not meant to carry. And he knows things, his ways are higher than our ways. And we shouldn't encroach upon that. And so when he says in Romans 9, I will have mercy on who I will have mercy on, I will harden the heart of those who I choose to harden, we are merely, um, we are not the potter, we are the clay. And you have to come to a place in your Christian faith where you recognize that. Where you say, you know what? There's this most important thing, which is salvation. And I don't really get why this person gets in and that person doesn't. But you know what? I can't. But God does. And I place my faith in God that he knows what what is happening. And he knows what is right far greater than I. And part of Christian maturity, you guys, is not coming to the place where you say, I've got to fully reconcile why God does this and why God... Actually, faith and Christian maturity is saying, you know what? There are certain areas like why God hardens the heart of some and why he has mercy on others that I just have to trust God. I have to trust my Father because it's too cosmically big for me and I can't bear that responsibility. And that's actually a sign of Christian maturity. And so um, I pray that that is who we will be as we trust God's sovereignty in salvation. Let's close prayer. Fathers, we have just, just scratched the surface of these great truths of eternal salvation. It has been a reminder to us to abandon all of the noise that fills our minds in our normal lives and to focus on the fact that we have a father who has taken it upon himself to bear the responsibility of the most important cosmic of choices of life and death, eternal salvation upon himself, that yes, we get to participate in some way in that, but it starts and ends with you, Father. And I pray that that would not be a stumbling block for us, but it would be um, actually uh, a relief to us an encouragement to us, something that builds our faith in our Father who is far greater and far higher than we can understand. But uh, we seek to be mature Christians, Lord. And I pray you would grow us in maturity in Christ, to trust you in areas that are difficult, and uh, knowing that that trust is well-founded. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's stand and close in worship.